Part 71 of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume 1, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 71 John Whitmore, alias Old Dash, executed for a rape. The summary punishment of a ravisher by a conscientious emperor of the Turks in days of old, if now perchance inflicted, might more tend to check the inordinate unlawful lust of men than all the public executions of such destroyers of the peace of females. It is said that Mahmud, Sultan of Damascus, one night, while he was going to bed, was addressed by a poor villager, who complained that a young Turk of distinction had broken into his apartment, and forced him to abandon his wife and family to his abuses. The good Sultan charged that, if the Turk returned, he should immediately give him notice of it. Three days after the poor man came again with the same complaint. Mahmoud took a few attendants with him, and, being arrived at the complainants, commanded the lights to be extinguished, and, rushing in, cut the ravisher to pieces. He then ordered a light, to see whom he had killed, and, being satisfied, he fell on his knees and returned God thanks, after which he ate heartily of the poor man's bread, and gave him a purse of gold. Being asked the reason of this extraordinary behaviour, he replied, I concluded this ravisher was one who might fancy himself entitled to my protection, and consequently might be no other than my son. Therefore, lest the tenderness of nature should enervate the arm of justice, I resolved to give its scope in the dark. But when I saw that it was only an officer of my guards, I joyfully returned God thanks. Then I asked the injured man for food to satisfy my hunger, having had neither sleep nor sustenance from the moment I heard the accusation, till I had thus punished the author of the wrong, and showed myself worthy of my people's obedience. Upon the same principle as that acted upon by the worthy Turkish Sultan, the hut of the meanest peasant is, by the law of England, as sacred as the most gorgeous palace, and the chastity of his wife or daughter should be held inviolate. The instances of disobedience to the laws in this respect are but too frequent, and in no case have circumstances of greater atrocity appeared than in that which we shall now detail. John Whitmore was capitally indicted for a rape on the person of Mary, the wife of Thomas Brown, on the 24th of October, 1810, on the common between Hayes and West Bedford. The prisoner was a labourer in the powder-mills at Harlington Common, and the prosecutrix, who lived at Hayes, having one of her sons by a former husband living as a servant with Mr. Potts, a farmer at West Bedford, had gone thither about twelve o'clock with some clean linen for him. She stopped at a public-house in the neighbourhood whilst he changed his linen, and there saw the prisoner, who, after asking her several questions, told her she had come much the longest way about on her way from Hayes, and offered to show her a much shorter cut over the heath on her return. The prosecutrix thanked him, and accepted his offer. He accompanied her, as if for that purpose, decoyed her two miles out of her way to an unfrequented part of the heath, among some bushes, under pretence of looking after a stray horse, and there brutally violated her person. The poor woman, who was forty-seven years of age, as soon as she could, ran away from him over the heath, and again lost her way. By accident she met a gentleman, who put her in the right road, and she reached her home about eight o'clock at night. 
she was afraid to tell her husband what had occurred till the following Sunday. The husband next day set out with the constable, in search of the prisoner, from the description given by his wife, and on Tuesday traced him to a public-house at Twickenham, where he was known by the familiar appellation of Old Dasher, and there, after a stout resistance, he was taken into custody. The facts were, on his trial, which took place at the Old Bailey, on October 1810, clearly established by the poor woman, and the common sergeant having summed up the evidence, the prisoner was convicted and received sentence of death, in pursuance of which he was subsequently executed. Agnes Adams, imprisoned for uttering a forged note. For three or four years previous to this trial, numberless impositions had been practised upon the unwary in the metropolis by the passing of paper manufactured in imitation of the notes of the Bank of England, which were traced to have originated in the Fleet Prison, a receptacle for debtors only. The notes, it seems, were printed on paper similar to those of the Bank of England, but upon the slightest inspection they were easily detected. The great success of sharpers passing them chiefly arose from the hurry of business and from the novelty of the fraud. The shopkeeper would see the word one, two, three, etc., an exact imitation of the genuine notes, but did not examine farther, or he would have found, instead of pounds, the counterfeit expressed pence, and instead of Governor and Company of the Bank of England, the words Governor and Company of the Bank of Fleet substituted. The offence of publishing these notes, however, was not deemed a forgery. The circulation of fleet paper was generally entrusted to profligate women, who cohabited with the men who made them. This mode was less suspicious, and in a single year had been carried on to a considerable amount. Of this description, and we would adduce many such, was Agnes Adams, who, in passing one of such notes, filled up with the words two pence, as a two-pound Bank of England note, to Mr. Spratz, a publican of St. John Street, Clerkenwell, was by him detected, seized, prosecuted, and convicted at the Middlesex Sessions, 1811. The punishment could only be extended to six months' hard labour in the House of Correction. The fraternity of thieves about London have fabricated cant names for the different articles which they steal. The fleet notes were called flash screens. Richard Armitage and Charles Thomas, executed for forgery. The crime for which these men justly suffered was a forgery of the very worst description, having for its effect a scandalous breach of public trust, a robbery upon the very corporation which they were bound to protect from the nefarious attempts of others. It appears that they were connected with a person named Roberts, who was apprehended on a charge of swindling, on which he was remanded from the police office to Coldbathfields Prison in the year 1810. In a few days he succeeded in making his escape from the jail in company with a man named Harper by the most extraordinary means. From the evidence adduced before the magistrates, before whom an inquiry into the escape took place, it appeared that the prisoners were locked up in the usual way at night, but that in the morning they were found to have escaped. On the jail being examined, six gates which had been locked were found standing open, and it was discovered that the prisoners had completed their design by scaling the outer wall, which they had ascended by means of the scaffolding round a lodge which was in the course of being built, and from which they had reached the ground by means of a rope which was found still hanging on the outside. 
the most anxious inquiries were made after Roberts, but it was not until the month of April 1811 that he was discovered at a tavern at Vauxhall, where he had passed himself off as a country attorney, and was taken into custody. He then, to save his own life, impeached the partners in his villainy, and Armitage and Thomas, who were clerks in the Bank of England, were in consequence secured. Armitage was first taken, and he was examined at Marlborough Street, and committed for a trial on charges of forging dividend warrants to the amount of £2,400, and Thomas was almost immediately afterwards apprehended and committed on the same charges. At the ensuing sessions they were put on their trial. When the case proved against them was that they were bank clerks in the Imperial Annuity Office, and that they had forged a warrant to obtain the dividends due upon a sum of money belonging to a person who had been dead three years, and whose executors had not applied for the property. In pursuance of the warrants forged in this case, the amount paid was £360, and the prisoner Thomas signed the book as an attesting witness. The case was proved by Roberts and his wife, whose testimony, however, was corroborated by that of other witnesses, and the prisoners were found guilty, and were sentenced to death. The unhappy men were executed on the 24th of June, 1811, at the Old Bailey, pursuant to their sentence. Armitage, from severe illness, was supported to the scaffold by a friend. He was also accompanied by a clergyman, to whose admonitions he appeared to pay great attention. His companion was a Catholic, and he was attended by a priest of that persuasion. He exhibited great fortitude. The secret of Robert's escape was not discovered for a considerable time afterwards, when he was induced to confess that, through the means of a bribe offered to the person who swept the cells, he was unable to procure impressions in wax of the keys which would be required to open the doors through which he and his fellow prisoner would have to pass. Having obtained these, he soon got keys made, and he was assisted in his flight by this friend at court. It was supposed, however, that he had some other more powerful ally than a sweeper, and considerable changes in the management of the jail were subsequently made. The punishment for the crime of forgery, a few years only before this time, was much less severe than that which was now inflicted, the increase of the offence having rendered an alteration in its severity necessary. It would appear, however, that the efforts of the legislators produced anything but the desired effect the frequency of the offence being increased instead of diminished. The ancient punishment for this crime we find thus minutely described in a London periodical publication for the year 1731. June the 9th. This day, about noon, Japhet Crook, alias St. Peter Stranger, was brought to the pillory at Charing Cross, according to his sentence for forgery. He stood an hour thereon, after which a chair was set on the pillory, and he being put therein, the hangman, with a sort of pruning-knife, cut off both his ears, and immediately a surgeon clapped a styptic thereon. Then the executioner, with a pair of scissors, cut his left nostril twice before it was quite through, and afterwards cut through the right nostril at once. He bore all this with great patience, but when, in pursuance of his sentence, his right nostril was seared with a red-hot iron, he was in such violent pain that his left nostril was let alone, and he went from the pillory bleeding. He was conveyed from thence to the King's Bench prison, there to remain for life. He died in confinement about three years after.
Jane Cox, executed for murder. The practice of apothecaries selling poison in their shops to strangers, who purchase it under the pretence of its having to be employed in killing rats, is one which cannot be too severely reprobated, and even punished. In Mantua of old, it appears from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, that it was an offence punishable with death, for the apothecary says, Such mortal drugs I have, but Mantua's law is death to any, he that utters them. And the peace and safety of society might be secured, and crime and suicide rendered much less frequent, if some such provision were made in England. On the subject of selling poison for the purpose of committing murder, we find from Hill's Journey Through Sicily and Calabria, that in the year 1791 at Palermo, a city not far distant from Mantua, an old woman was executed for dealing out such mortal drugs. Many people in this town and neighbourhood, Palermo, says this author, died in a sudden and extraordinary manner. They were generally seized with vomiting and expired in a few hours. A young woman went to an officer of justice to make some complaints concerning her husband. He desired her to be reconciled and refused to proceed against him, upon which she turned away in a rage, muttering that she knew how to be revenged. The magistrate paid attention to what she said, and gave orders for her being arrested. When, upon strict inquiry concerning the meaning of her word, she confessed that it was her intention to poison her husband, by purchasing a bottle of vinegar from an old woman, who prepared it for that purpose. In order to ascertain the truth of this story, another woman was sent to the old jade, to demand some of the vinegar, which was sold for about ten pence a bottle. "'What do you want with it?' said the vendor. "'Why?' replied the other. "'I have a very bad husband. I want to get rid of him.' Hereupon the old woman, seventy-two years of age, produced the fatal dose, upon which she was immediately seized, and conducted to prison, where she confessed that she had sold forty-five or forty-six bottles. Many people were taken up, but as, upon further inquiry, it was discovered that several of the nobility had been purchasers, the affair was dropped, and the old woman alone suffered death. To proceed, however, to the case of the unfortunate prisoner whose name heads this article. On the ninth of August, 1811, she was indicted at the Assizes for the county of Devon for the wilful murder of John Trenorman, an infant sixteen months old, and Arthur Tucker was indicted as an accessory before the fact. The latter was a respectable farmer, living at Hatherley in Devonshire, and the infant was his natural child. It appeared that Jane Cox had, on the 25th of May, 1811, administered to the child a quantity of arsenic, by putting it into the child's hands, which it put into its mouth and ate, and in consequence died in about two hours. The prisoner, in her written confession, had implicated Tucker, as having persuaded her to commit this act, and stated that he had taken the arsenic from under the roof of a cottage, and given it to her, and promised her a one-pound note if she would administer it to the child. The prisoner, Jane Cox, after a trial of seven hours, was convicted, but Tucker, who called a number of respectable witnesses, who gave him a very high character, was acquitted, the woman's story being unsupported by evidence, and being disbelieved. On Monday the 12th of August, 1811, pursuant to her sentence, the unfortunate woman was brought to the new drop, the place of execution, and underwent the sentence of the law. 
she addressed the spectators at some length, and in a very audible manner. She repeated her former confession, with some further particulars respecting the means used by Tucker to prevail on her to commit the horrid deed, for which she acknowledged she ought to die, but lamented that the person who had instigated her to the commission of it was not also to suffer with her. Michael Whiting, executed for poisoning his brothers-in-law. Crime has different shades, but a deeper dye cannot be given to it than when one in the assumed role of sanctity attempts to dip his hands in human blood, particularly when the blood is united to him by ties of consanguinity. Michael Whiting lived at Downham, where he occasionally preached, being a Methodist parson. But as the bounty of those who listened to his pious exhortations was not very large, he endeavoured to add to his resources by keeping a shop in which he sold bread, meal, etc., and also drugs, being at once a comforter of the soul and body. This hypocrite had two brothers-in-law named George and Joseph Langman, who resided on a small farm near Downham. They were both under age and had two sisters, one of whom was married to Whiting, and the other, aged ten years, lived with her brothers. To possess himself of the small estate of these youths, Whiting had recourse to a most diabolical plan. The little sister was sent to his shop for some bread, and learning from her that the housekeeper of the brothers was about going from home for a few days, he affected much kindness, and promised paying them a visit. He did so, and with unusual liberality brought with him materials for making a pudding or two, observing to the housekeeper, "'Catherine, be sure you make the boys a pudding before you go.' After doling out a few texts of scripture which he had ready on all occasions, and which he applied with about as much judgment as Sancho Panza did his proverbs, he departed, taking with him the little girl, tenderly remarking that her sister would take better care of her than her brothers during the housekeeper's absence. Catherine made the puddings, but remarked during the process that the dough would not properly adhere, and when she departed she left them in a kneading trough. The brothers, not suspecting that any mischief was intended, boiled one of the puddings for dinner, and when properly done sat down to partake of it, but before they had swallowed three mouthfuls they were seized with violent vomitings. Suspecting that the pudding was poisoned, they threw a small piece of it to a sow in the yard, which she had scarcely swallowed, when the poor animal was taken sick, and after a lingering short time died. The elder brother, by the application of proper medicine, soon recovered but the younger lingered for a long time ere he regained his health. The pudding was now analysed by a professor of chemistry, who found it to contain a large quantity of corrosive sublimate of mercury, and no other poisonous ingredient, a fact which destroyed the defence set up by Whiting, that he had laid some nux vomica for rats, some of which he supposed that had got among the meal. For this offence Whiting was indicted at the Isle of Ely Assizes on Thursday the 5th of March, 1811 when in addition to the above facts it was proved that in the event of the langman's death he would come in for their property in right of his wife as the next heiress of her brothers the trial lasted till six o'clock in the evening when the jury retired and after a deliberation of ten minutes found the prisoner guilty when he was immediately sentenced to be hanged end of part seventy one